You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. If you have a Bible, you can make your way to Matthew's Gospel, uh, first book of the New Testament, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9. Uh, if you're using those black hardcover Bibles, page 814, is where you can find uh, today's text. Today we're continuing and almost wrapping up. We've got one more week after today uh, in the Rhythms of Grace series we've been in. Uh, and today we're going to talk about mission, the rhythm of mission. If you've been around the church for the last couple decades, uh, words like mission or missional have been, have been really popular, have become very popular kind of buzzwords in the American church. Uh, but as Stephen Neal, an author, pointed out some years ago, when everything is mission, nothing is mission. Or as J.D. Payne uh, said, these words, mission and missional, they might be now accepted terminology among many of us in the church, but we actually often are referencing different dictionaries. We say these words, but we mean different things. So as we look at this rhythm of grace, this pursuit of the Christian life, one of the first things we need to do is establish a shared definition of what mission is. And the starting point is really to understand that God is a missional God. God is a missional God. Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright talks about how he used to look for a a basis for mission in the Bible. He would kind of comb through scriptures and try to find different texts, uh, proof texts even, of where he'd find mission kind of showing up here or there. And he was surprised, this is many years ago, he was surprised to find out it wasn't so much that there were proof texts about mission. There are some passages that talk about it. But moreover, he saw in scripture a missional God. He saw that that from beginning to end, the Bible, the whole story of of the Bible is the story of God's mission in the world. And the scope of that mission is enormous. It's enormous. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we actually read, if you're reading the New Testament with us uh, this year, we actually were in that text this morning. In 2 Corinthians 5, the apostle Paul says, God is reconciling the world to himself in Jesus. In other words, everything that humanity's rebellion has corrupted, the sin that has pervasively affected the world in each of our lives since the fall, God is on a mission to reconcile that to himself. And as we're going to read in Matthew's gospel this morning, Jesus came into the world to accomplish that mission and then to send his followers to continue it. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Matthew's gospel, chapter 9, and I'm going to read verses 35 through 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us. God, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we would behold wondrous things from your word. We ask that you would open our ears, that we may hear what you would speak to us today. Open our hearts, that we may grasp the treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden in Christ. And then we ask, God, that you would open our mouths that we may boldly proclaim the mystery of your gospel. And we pray that all for Jesus' sake. 
Amen. So four things that we're going to consider about mission today in light of these words from Matthew chapter 9. Missions means, missions motive, missions math, and missions mandate. Okay, we're coming back strong. Four-part alliteration, they're all M's. Missions means, missions motive, missions math, missions mandate. So first, missions means. Uh, These verses in Matthew's gospel point to the means of God's mission. In other words, how does this mission happen? Most importantly, this passage fixes our eyes on Jesus Christ, who is the one that ultimately accomplishes the mission of God. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but these are really important lenses to to understand Jesus and his work in the world. The incarnation, the ministry of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection is the epitome of God as a missional God. It's the epitome of God as a missional God. We will never rightly understand the role that that we have to play in God's mission if we don't first understand who Jesus is and what he came to do. From the moment that sin entered the world, Genesis chapter 3, God began his mission to redeem and to reconcile. He, He set out to reveal humanity's sin so that we would see and we would feel our need for rescue. He chose a people through which he would then bless all the nations of the earth. He established a system of sacrifices to show our need for a substitute to pay the penalty, to pay the cost of sin. He established a line of kings so that we would know our need for a greater king. He established the the priesthood to show us our need for a mediator between God and humanity. He raised up prophets to herald the coming kingdom and to call people to repent of their sin and to believe the gospel. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. Of all of that. He is our prophet. He's our priest. He's our king. He is our once for all sacrifice. He's the descendant of Abraham through whom all nations of the earth are blessed. He's the one through whom God is reconciling the world to himself. We can't replicate that. God help us if we try to replicate. That's not our job. That's Jesus' job. We can't replicate that part of the mission of God, but we can participate in it. There are means of this mission that we are meant to continue. We're meant to do some of the very work that Jesus did himself before he went to the cross, before he rose from the grave. And as Matthew is saying in this text, as he's showing in the example of Jesus, we are meant to both proclaim and to enact the kingdom of God. So if you want a really succinct definition of what what is mission, it means to proclaim and to enact the kingdom of God. Verse 35 here says that as Jesus was going through all these cities and villages, he both proclaimed the gospel and healed every disease and every affliction. So the mission of God has always and will always involve both words and deeds. We tell the good news of what God has done, what God is doing, and we show or enact that good news by living in ways that extend the grace, extend the blessing of God. We might use a word like evangelism to describe the proclaiming part, the word part of this. And we might use a word like service or mercy to describe the enacting part. But I hope you see this morning, both of these things are part of the comprehensive mission of God. Every church, I know some of you have been part of different kinds of churches over the course of your life, every church, every denomination, every tribe of Christians tends to emphasize one of these to the neglect of the other. And we do the same thing, if we're honest, in our own lives as individuals. We prefer the word side or we prefer the the deed side. So I just invite you to consider, as we're in this topic this week, which way do I lean? 
Ask yourself, which way do, do I lean? How am I prone to maybe be imbalanced in my own pursuit of mission? 45 years or so ago, maybe 50 now, uh, a missionary and scholar named Samuel Moffat uh, shared some really wise words. He said this, Finding enough food and water or even justice to keep this world going and saying that is enough is like throwing a life preserver to a man who has fallen overboard from an ocean liner but not bothering to stop and pick him up. It may keep him from drowning, but he will still die from the wind or the sun or the sharks. This is not to say that it's no part of the rescue to throw him the life preserver. It is. It may be the only thing that keeps him alive to be rescued. But what finally counts is picking him up and taking him aboard. And Samuel Moffat continues, So with our mission, anything less than salvation from sin and incorporation into the family of God is what another author refers to as the false presence of the kingdom. The false presence of the kingdom. And Samuel Moffat concludes by saying, there's a deeper hunger than the physical, a hunger and thirst that only Christ can satisfy. Here's why I so appreciate what he's saying there. The offense of the gospel, the exclusive claims that Jesus makes, how Jesus points to priorities in every single culture and every single one of our lives and says, hey, something about what you're valuing left to yourself is objectively wrong. That means there's always a strong temptation for Christians to remain silent. And maybe to be people who serve others and people of social action that do meaningful, good things in the world, but to neglect the words. And as Moffat is saying here, that really is to throw a life preserver to someone, but not actually to stop and pick them up. It's to treat the symptoms of sin in a fallen world without ever offering the remedy to the curse of sin itself, which is only a restored relationship with God through Jesus and what he's done. And Moffat here quotes this other author. He refers to it as the false presence of the kingdom. That's, that's exactly right. We, we don't just want people to experience some of the benefits, some of the blessing of being in proximity to the kingdom of God. We don't just want people to experience a little bit of the peace a little bit of the provision, a little bit of the justice that comes with the kingdom of God. If we really want people, if we really love people, I should say, we want them to actually enter the kingdom of God themselves, not just live in, the, in proximity to it, not just to live on the periphery of it. We want them to enter it. And because that only happens by faith, by belief, we have to use words to proclaim, to invite, to compel people to trust in the work of Jesus. Now, at the same time, for any of us who might be more inclined to only participate in the proclaiming, I want you to see in Matthew 9, in the example of Jesus, that the genuine presence of the kingdom, right? We don't want the false presence of the kingdom, but in the genuine presence of the kingdom, that always involves enacting too. Jesus did not just proclaim the gospel. He healed, Matthew says, every disease and every affliction. Why did Jesus do that? Well, it's because disease and affliction are effects of sin, They are examples, and there are many others, of how our sin has corrupted what God originally made good. But in the fullness of the kingdom of God, when the world is fully reconciled to God, there will be no more disease. There will be no more affliction. You got to hear Jordan say it this morning to us in the words of encouragement. That is the fulfillment of where all of this mission is going. It's going to a kingdom of God, a fully realized kingdom of God, where there is no more sickness or sorrow or death or even tears anymore. All of that goes away in the kingdom of God. 
So by healing people, Jesus is enacting God's kingdom. He's giving people a genuine taste of the kingdom. And when we serve, when we bless people in Jesus' name, when we push back some of what is dark in the world, when we counteract some of the effects of sin, we get to do the same thing. We get to enact that kingdom. So a faithful pursuit of mission includes the means of both proclaiming and enacting. We get to participate in God's mission by following this example of Jesus. But most importantly, in our mission, we are pointing to Jesus himself because he's the one who ultimately accomplishes it. Second, second, let's talk about mission's motive. And look there again at verse 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Sometimes we maybe take stock of our lives and think about, well, why, if I'm not pursuing mission and I know I should be or I even want to be, why am I not doing that? And oftentimes we might think lack of courage. I lack courage to do this. The gospel is offensive, so we're inclined to shrink back, and that's true. But in light of this text, I actually think a deeper reason that we don't pursue mission is lack of compassion. Lack of compassion. Some of you might know this, the word compassion is a conjunction of two words. Come, C-O-M, meaning with, and passion. But not passion the way we tend to, to use it in English in our, in our vernacular, meaning intense desire or enthusiasm. The original, uh, antiquated, largely now forgotten meaning of passion is something else. Anybody know what it means? Suffer. Suffering. And so to have compassion is to suffer with. To suffer with someone. And this is the heart of Jesus for people. He looks out on this crowd, and he does this multiple times over the course of his earthly ministry. He looks out on this group of people, and rather than first being inclined to condemn or judge them, I mean, he knows what's in their heart. He knows the heart of man. He knows that they, they're responsible in part for corrupting God's good design. But instead of condemnation or judgment, instead of apathy or indifference, his first response is compassion. That's the motive of mission. Compassion. Jesus sees here how the leaders of Israel, the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the ones who were supposed to be proclaiming and enacting the kingdom of God, he sees how they have neglected and failed in their responsibilities. And he sees how that's hurt people, how it's left them vulnerable, how it's left them helpless. And so Matthew Henry years ago put it this way, he said, what spiritual health and life and vigor can there be in souls that are fed with husks and ashes instead of the bread of life. What possible chance do they have? What possible kind of life could they live if they've only been given husks and ashes when they're meant to actually be fed with the bread of life? I want to ask you this morning, do you see people that way? When you look out at other people, particularly people that don't at this moment know Jesus or have any desire to follow him at all, do you see them this way? Or do you just tend more to think that people who don't want anything to do with Jesus, who maybe don't line up with the morality of the kingdom of God, do you tend to think everybody else is just a moron, an idiot? One of my absolute failures in mission, and there's been several over the years, one of my absolute failures was, was an interaction with a Jehovah's Witness uh, where I essentially, I didn't actually say this phrase, but essentially communicated to her that she was dumb for believing what she believed. And I look back on that situation some years later now, and I asked myself, like, what if I, in that moment, instead of just thinking that she was dumb, 
What if I could have seen her with these eyes? What if I could have recognized that here was an image bearer of God who had been fed with husks and ashes and never actually been invited to see the bread of life? Never actually been fed with the real substance of something. Had maybe been on the periphery and heard some things about it, but had never actually eaten the bread of life. People outside the kingdom of God are helpless and harassed. Do you see them that way? In our self-righteousness and our frustration with some of the way things are in the world, we tend to condemn and distance ourselves. But the mission of God is a mission motivated by compassion. It's driven by a heart that draws near, that comes close to people and suffers with them. So, oh, that we would have these kinds of eyes and this kind of heart that Jesus has here. I would just encourage you to pray that God would give you these kinds of eyes. Because here's the reality. If, if we're not pursuing mission in our lives, it's not ultimately because we don't have enough time. I know we're busy. I know there's lots of other things going on. It's also not ultimately because we're not equipped enough. We could all benefit from learning more about how to talk about Jesus winsomely and accurately and how to navigate difficult situations. We could all benefit from that. But at the end of the day, it's not lack of time. It's not lack of equipping. At the end of the day, if we're not pursuing this, it's because we lack compassion. It's because we see people with the wrong eyes. We see people the wrong way. I was with a a pastor this week who was sharing his story of how he came to faith in Jesus. And for him, that happened when he was, I think, 19 years old and while he was in jail. He was a repeat offender. And when he came back to this penitentiary for the second time, a guard who recognized him, who knew him from his first stay there, stood in his cell as he was getting settled in and said to him something like, you know, God can change you and God can bless you if you pray. And you know, 10 or so years later now, this, this now pastor recalling this event, he said, you know, it was probably the worst presentation of the gospel ever. <laughs> there was no mention of Jesus, right, which is really important to the gospel. And it's really incomplete and maybe misleading. Like God doesn't always change us or bless us when we pray. Like there's a lot of qualification if we were actually explaining this concept that we'd have to give. So he's saying it was a terrible presentation of the gospel. But when this guard looked at that teenager in a a jail cell, instead of seeing a drug addicted, deadbeat, drain on society the way some of us might be inclined to see this person, he instead saw an image bearer of God who had been fed with husks and ashes. He saw an image bearer. He, I imagine in his heart in that moment, something happened where he went, look, look what sin does. Look what sin tries to take. Look what it steals from people who were made for something so much better and something so much different than this. And he, instead of condemning and distancing himself, he stood in that young man's jail cell door and he opened his mouth with whatever he had to give from his mouth at that moment. <laughs> and that young man entered the kingdom of God. That man entered the kingdom of God. That's the motive of mission. It's compassion. Compassion. Third, third, let's talk about mission's math. Verse 37, then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Jesus is telling his disciples here, there aren't enough laborers to keep up with the harvest. There are a lot of people who need to know this good news. Maybe even they want to know this good news about the kingdom of God, but there's a shortage of people who are actually going to proclaim it and enact it among them. So that's the mission's math. Harvest is greater than laborers. But if we're honest, most of us don't believe that. 
We don't believe that. In fact, most of us invert the math. Most of us think the laborers are greater than the harvest. We believe that if there's a shortage involved in this equation, the shortage is actually in the harvest. We, we think that the world is so lost that there really aren't that many people out there who are someday going to repent of their sin and turn to trust in Jesus. I'm often inclined to believe that in my, in my life, maybe like you are. In what's becoming an increasingly post-Christian culture, it feels like a lot of people we know have maybe heard the gospel or at least some variation of it and have made up their minds one way or the other. If they're going to believe it, they already do. And maybe there's a few people who are like right on the edge and maybe they'll eventually become Christians or maybe there's some people who grew up in the church and they've walked away for a while and maybe they'll come back. But apart from these few, it can feel like our pursuit of mission is, is futility, is largely going to be fruitless. Now we should acknowledge that, that mission in a post-Christian context is hard and it's different than mission for these first century disciples. They were proclaiming the fullness of the mystery of God in a way that had never been heard before, in a way that was not known in most places in the world. It often takes a lot more time, a lot more conversation, relationship for someone in a post-Christian context to come to faith than someone who's completely unfamiliar with Jesus. And so from a, from a practical standpoint, our pursuit of mission needs to include a, re- a rediscovery of practices like biblical hospitality, like, like opening our homes to people who at this moment want nothing to do with Jesus, opening our lives, even more importantly, not just our homes, but opening our lives to people. Summer is, is really over, as crazy as that, that sounds, September is this week, so I just would invite you as we're kind of transitioning from the end of summer and into the beginning of fall, a new season, take a minute or two today and just think back through your summer calendar. Who was in your home this summer? Whose home were you in this summer? What relationships did you give some time and attention to? If all of those people were Christians, I should say this, you're an incredibly blessed person to have that kind of Christian community. I mean, praise God, you've got that many relationships with other people who are Christians. That's amazing. But if that's the case, you're almost certainly neglecting pursuit of mission, or at least the practice of hospitality in your life. Our pursuit of mission in this cultural moment especially means we can't only exist in parallel Christian subcultures. We can't remove ourselves from all the public spaces. We can't build fortresses and hide in them. Jesus, of course, prayed for his followers that they would not be of the world, they would not be like the people who who have embraced the values of this world, but he, in the very same breath, prayed that we would remain in the world, that we would not be taken, taken out of it. And in terms of the math, I just would invite you to consider this. Amid the difficulties of mission in our context, in this world, God has raised up millions and millions of more laborers, more followers of Jesus than there were even close to in the first century. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson says that by virtually any calculation, In the last 150 years, there's been greater mission work and more conversions to Christ than in the preceding 1,800 years combined. The last 150 years compared to the preceding 1,800 combined, more people have come to faith in Christ, more laborers, more missions work has been done. But even with that huge increase, this missions math remains true. There is still a plentiful harvest and a shortage of laborers. Don't have time to delve into all of it this morning, but there's a great organization called the Joshua Project that actually tracks some of the statistics about unreached people groups. 
people in the world that just have not had access to even hear the good news of the gospel. Here's the incredible thing. The U.S. is home to the third largest number of unreached people groups in the world. So even if you're not someone who's going to unreached people groups other places, many of them are already here. Actually, there's a couple kids in my daughter's classes in the Cumberland Valley School District that are from unreached people groups around the world. So not just like in the U.S., but in our own backyard here in Cumberland County. The harvest is plentiful. And whether it's among a post-Christian culture, unreached or unreached people groups that are in our neighborhoods, mission is not just a global pursuit. Mission is meant to be an everyday, local pursuit in our own workplaces and schools and neighborhoods. We really have to believe the mission's math. that It's the harvest that is plentiful. It's the laborers that are few. And that leads us to the last point this morning, which is mission's mandate. Mission's mandate. Verse 38, Therefore, Jesus says, because of all this, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So as Jesus' disciples, as his followers, our missional mandate is to pray and to be sent. Pray and be sent. Jesus says here, pray earnestly that God would send laborers. And the fuel for our prayers is, is what we're seeing in this text, that God himself is a missional God. He's already committed to do this work. It's compassion for people the way Jesus has compassion. It's vexation about the math, that there is a shortage of laborers, that the harvest is plentiful. And it's hope that into that gap, God is providing opportunities for us in this moment. So let's be people of prayer about mission, about mission. As the old adage goes, we don't just talk to other people about God, we talk to God about other people. There's deep and powerful work in hardened human hearts, hearts that, like ours, that only God can do by the power of his spirit. So we ask God to do that work. And if you're, if you're prone, if you're inclined to be cynical about the futility of mission, if you kind of look out on the world and you don't have compassion for people, and you tend to be more cynical anyway, here's what I'd say to you. Nothing will solidify your cynicism like attempting mission without prayer. Nothing's going to solidify your cynicism like trying to do any of this stuff without prayer. Prayerlessness kills passion for mission. Prayerlessness kills compassion for people. It burns out in a second. And so instead, cultivate more passion by pleading with God in prayer for him to do this work that he's already promised to do. Then in addition to prayer, we're to be sent as laborers. And consider the original audience here. Jesus is saying this to his disciples, and immediately after, the next verse, chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus sends out the 12. In Luke's gospel, he actually repeats this same teaching. He says, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, and then he sends out not the 12, but the 72, a bigger group. So if your paradigm is that mission is primarily the job of pastors and missionaries and other people that work in vocational ministry, you didn't get that from Jesus. You didn't get that from Jesus. If you've restricted your involvement in mission to prayer or to giving financially, you didn't get that from Jesus. Jesus calls not only the 12, not only the 72, but all who would come after him, all who would follow him, to pray that God would raise up laborers. And here's the crazy thing. The laborers that God most often raises up are those people, are the ones who pray for laborers to be raised up. Pray and be sent. Pray and be sent. What's that look like in your life right now? Where, where are you seeing some opportunities for mission? Or where are you stuck? Where, where are you struggling? These kinds of reflections should be normal among us in 
a church community. And not just normal, they should be encouraging and supportive and energizing. So I would just invite you to talk about this with each other, whether that's your Bible study group or your friends or your family. Uh, read the stories that our elders send out about once a month. We've been sending out to at least uh, anyone who's in covenant here or regular attender here, we send out uh, stories of how you, how individuals or families among us are pursuing mission in their lives. Read those stories. Be encouraged by them. Talk about those with each other. God has a mission. His mission has a church. And as a local expression of that church, we get to be part of doing this together, part of this mandate, coming alongside one another in this mandate. But men and women, here's the thing. If you hear me say nothing else this morning, hear this. Don't ever forget that the mission of God is not just our mandate. It is our life and our salvation. Jesus is not just our example in mission. Jesus is not just our commanding director telling us what to do in mission. Jesus is the yes and amen to all the promises of God. We were, we were the helpless and harassed sheep without a shepherd. We are the ones on whom Jesus had compassion. And many of us in this room have entered the kingdom of God through the work of Jesus. Many of us have been adopted into God's family. Many of us have been raised to life from our death, from our spiritual death. And it's because God is a missional God and Jesus came into the world. So may we rejoice that we have been rescued and redeemed by God's mission. And then in the strength God provides, may we pray and be sent as laborers who both proclaim and who enact the kingdom of God. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, you have given us this glorious gospel, this good news of your son, Jesus Christ. And as we have joyfully received it for ourselves, we ask that you would make us effective in inviting other people to enter your kingdom as well. We were those apart from you who tried to sustain our lives eating husks and ashes when you came into this world to offer the bread of life. So even now as we prepare to come to this table to quite literally feast on the bread of life, the sacrament that you have left us, may we come with a renewed gratitude and appreciation that we have been redeemed and reconciled by the mission of God, by the work of Christ. And may you meet us with your grace this morning. May you renew us with compassion and passion that we would go back out into this world that you love, among people that you love, and be people who continue your mission in this world. We pray that all in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.